Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Ron LaSalvia is an operations executive with over 30 years of leadership experience in technology, strategy consulting, and the military. Ron is currently the CEO and founder of Peck, a startup based in Scottsdale, Arizona. Peck applies science and technology to help nurture the most important relationships in one's life, leading to deeper connections, well-being, and happiness. Ron served as president and chief operating officer of Endurance, an international group, publicly traded web technology company serving very small businesses. Prior to Endurance, he served as the COO of Decision Strategies International, a strategy consulting firm focused on scenario-based planning. Ron also served in the United States Navy for 24 years, commanding two nuclear submarines. While in command, he was ranked the number one captain for two consecutive years by squadron commander. After completing his naval service, he attended the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, earning his MBA. Ron currently lives in Scottsdale with his wife, Laura. He's originally from Philadelphia and remains a diehard Philly sports fan. So, Ron, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Hey, thank you very much, Cameron. Happy yes. to be here. No, it's cool. When um, when we were introduced by Gordy Bufton, one of the things I was thinking about was was actually your transitioning kind of from the COO world over to the CEO world. So um, it's going to be cool to dig into a little bit of that with you to find out what that is like when you decide to make that leap from the uh, that second in command role where we're very maybe entrepreneurial, but to, to becoming more of an entrepreneur. But why don't you go back and tell us just a little bit about um, about kind of how you got started and how you got into the the operations side of running companies. Sure. I, I think that started um, actually when I was in the Navy and uh, I had a, a Navy scholarship to, um, to school, uh, which is the only way I could afford to go there. And I thought I would do the Navy for four years. It teach me a bunch of leadership and, uh, and really lay the foundation for working in, in business and found out that I loved it. And then probably the most so one of the most traumatic elements of my Navy career was I was set up to go be the engineer on a nuclear submarine, which is generally considered the most prestigious job. It comes with a spot promotion. Most of the captains of submarines are uh, were former engineers um, because the reactor is so important and keeping the reactor safe is so important to the Navy. And a ship in uh, a ship ran aground in Bangor, Washington, hmm. and uh, landed up on the beach. Uh, and on a submarine, the uh, operations officer is also the navigator on a ship. Uh, and um, so the navigator ended up uh, getting fired. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my class happened to be the next class to graduate new submarine department heads. And uh, I ended up um, getting drafted to go to that ship. And at the time, I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me because I was losing my path to be a captain of a submarine. I was losing my promotion, which was going to cost me a lot of money. Mm. And I went in and became the navigations and operations officer of this submarine, which was considered the worst submarine in the Navy at the time. And because it was, it was on dry ground? Well, yeah. There was, it was on the front page of newspapers across the country where the submarine looked like a beached whale. And I remember like seeing that picture uh, on the front page of the New London Day and going into my class and saying, I wonder which one of you clowns is going to go be the navigator of this pig. No. Uh, and because I thought as an engineer, I was sort of untouchable. I did well on the exams that, you know, certify you as a nuclear engineer and ended up being me. 
So <laughs> that was a lesson there to watch what I say, but a little karma. But it, it turned out to be like one of the best experiences of my life and really sort of did two things for me. It threw me into the world of operations, which I found I loved and has sort of been a guiding principle for me. And um, it's sort of being a turnaround specialist. So in the Navy, I ended up following a, a series of people that had bad things happen to them, ended up getting relieved for cause is what they call it in the Navy when you're fired and going in and, and being the guy to turn around stuff, which I found a lot of fun. What do you, what do you learn in doing those turnarounds? Well, I mean, you sort of, uh, I think it comes down to sort of fundamentals. I mean, there's some fundamental basics that are being overlooked. You, un, you recognize that people want to do a good job uh, and they want to work hard and they really want to take pride in what they do, but they need the leadership to really hold them accountable to doing the fundamental things right. Um, so, I, yeah, so I've done it. It's, it's an incredibly rewarding experience to be able to take something that's broken and to fix it. Uh, and it's sort of like at the heart, I think, of like the operations mentality of solving problems. Okay, so take, take that into the operational world then. What have you learned kind of from the, um, from the naval or from, from the submarines, I guess, roles that you were in? And how are you actually applying those specifically in the business world? Yeah, so I think, um, so I, I think, you know, nowadays we talk a lot about lean management and stuff like that. In the Navy, um, we were doing Deming stuff before it was really, you know, all that popular. Mm. Uh, and uh, back when I was just a junior officer, we couldn't call anything management in the Navy because we were all leaders. So we took the concept of TQM and made it TQL and called it totally quality leadership. It was really kind of a focus on measuring, on process, on understanding variants, of getting to the root cause of problems. And uh, that's sort of universal. Uh, and the Navy, the nuclear Navy was headed by, you probably heard of Admiral Rickover, who's sort of legendary for really uh, – founding the nuclear submarine force and really laying the foundation for nuclear uh, uh, nuclear reactors across the world. And, and he was really sort of rigorous about, he would call it root cause analysis, sure. like the, you know, the six whys type of stuff. And, and that is sort of beat into you. So it's, it's really a focus on anytime something goes wrong, there's a reason for it. Understanding what that reason is, getting to the root cause and fixing it is the key to continuous improvement. You're kind of touching on the on the real solid skills that I don't think a lot of people actually get. Um, maybe even in the in the kind of from experience. Did you learn this in school at Wharton? Were you learning this when you were in the Navy? Or no, you- this was this was sort of Navy stuff. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental principles of Navy. Wharton sort of the operations piece was really about sort of you know using stuff like linear program to optimize sort of you know, ticket pricing or, you know, okay. the most optimal mix of, you know, ingredients in a product and stuff like that. It was, it was more mathematical. And the stuff that I learned in the Navy was more sort of fundamental principle based. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you really understand an operation and what's wrong with it? How do you develop sort of a zero defect mentality and take steps to get there? Sort of high reliability type stuff. How do you, how, what happens to you when you know all this stuff, the theoretical stuff and the applicable, the, the ways to apply this, and then it just, you, you kind of bump up to the fact that it's not working or, or people get involved and people just change all those kind of formulas or processes yeah. that we know. I mean, so we would, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, we would categorize things in terms of sort of like 
was it an operator error? Was it like a was it a person that caused the problem? And then you you sort of get down to was it you know? And then there's reasons behind even you know there's people involved in everything, right? Yeah. So is it is it sort of a system design problem? Was it a training problem? Uh, was it just an individual who you know? And, and it's extremely rare that it's just an individual trying you know who doesn't care enough to do the right thing. It's usually something underneath that personal issue that's sort of driving the problem. So really developing the intellectual current, um, you know, curiosity and the analytical rigor to go figure that stuff out and get to the root cause of that problem is, is I, I think the key to operational success. So what you're touching on seems so obvious in, or seems so practical in the, um, in both sectors, in the Navy and also in the private sector. But what I've always been curious about in the private sector, if you have an employee who's not performing, they're consistently not performing, you know, through all your best efforts, you can't coach them and train them. Right. You can fire them. Right. Can you fire people in the military? Or you know, it's funny. Uh, it depends, right? It's sort of like, it, it depends on how good the economy is ultimately because, you know, if the economy is not doing so good and the military seems like an attractive career option to people, then you tend to recruit pretty well. Then you tend to have a pipeline of people and then you can be like a little bit more selective. And when the economy is, um, is going strong, it becomes difficult to retain the people that you have. And if you fire somebody, the choice is, do you want to deal with, the, would you rather have the whole or the person? Right. Sometimes you'd rather have the whole, but more often you'd rather really um, try to train the person. And I guess, you know, one of the biggest, I think, you know, challenges for me in the in the transition from being in the Navy and being in the business world is a lot of the constraints you have in the Navy are not there in the business world, right? So you you mentioned one of them. It's sort of like in the Navy, you have a well-defined mission. And over with my submarine, I had 150 people, I a hull that was 330 feet long and 33 feet wide. And everything in it. And I was sort of constrained to that. So it becomes sort of a, an optimization problem of the resources you have where it took me a while to learn. And, and, and that sort of also biases you to maybe being a little too loyal to the individuals because maybe that's all you had. And then to learn that there are a lot more options to define the problem a different way or to go hire somebody or to attack a different problem that you have in the business world that you don't necessarily have in the Navy. It almost feels though you have to be a better leader in the Navy than you do in the private sector because you have those, those constraints and you don't, you can't just come up with the excuse of, Oh, well, I'll fire them and hire somebody else. You almost have to get results through people and train them and grow them and problem solve in a different way. And would that be true? Well, I think you'd recognize <clears throat> that. So I would say yes and no, because there's, there's, I think there's pluses and minuses to both that are very interesting. So in the Navy, you do, you're relying on people. You understand that military leadership is very top down, but it's not like on a submarine, you need to have 150 people thinking about how to best operate the submarine, not just the captain. Cause that's when you, you run into trouble, right? So you really, uh, I think focus on the military. Sometimes in the more technical branches of the service, you tend to forget that because you think it's all about technology, but it really comes down to people. Whereas like the Marine Corps, I don't think they ever forget that. Mm. So you have that going for you, but what makes it a little easier and a little less challenging is the mission is well-defined. Everybody signed up for the mission. Everybody wears the same clothes every day that sort of reinforce that, that mission. 
all the values, honor, courage, commitment, you know, in the Navy, what are our values? Everybody's sort of absorbed those, internalized those. So there's, there tends to be sort of a very um, strong alignment about some things that in some organizations in the business world, you have it. In some organizations, you don't. Like, you know, I mean, you don't have as much. So on a, on a submarine, there's a captain who's, who's basically the CEO, but he's not really a CEO in terms of the business world because he's still sort of operating yep. a submarine. And then you have an XO who's second in command. And then you have department heads. And everybody's got sort of a, a time sequence before they're going to go to the next job. And everybody sort of recognizes the way you get ahead is you establish a great reputation for the ship. And people don't necessarily know you, but they know you were the second in command of Montpelier. Montpelier was a great ship. Therefore, you must be a great guy. Therefore, you get ahead. Whereas in the business world, it's not like that. I mean, hmm. your COO might, you're the CEO and the COO or the CFO might be gunning for your job. It, it's just the loyalties are a lot different. They're a lot more individual. So in some ways, it's it's a greater challenge for leadership in the in the business world because you've got to manage everybody's egos. You got to align everybody's self interest. Okay, um, right. So, so that it's just a, so in, in some ways, it's just a different challenge, Cameron. Interesting. Okay, so you leave there and you go over to Endurance. What was um, what what did Endurance focus on, and what was your role there as president and COO? Yeah, so, and it took, I don't know if you want to talk the other stuff, I did some strategy consulting and COO of that, and then I got to Endurance. So, Endurance focused on um, really uh, very small businesses and helping very small businesses succeed through a web presence. And we offered kind of a range of products like web hosting and email marketing and domain names and stuff like that. We tried to bring them together in a very cost-effective way for Somebody, if you wanted to you know, do the COO Alliance website, we would have all that stuff sort of packaged for you so you could do it uh, very inexpensively. Hey, and the well, focus was really very small businesses. How many so, employees were there? Uh, about 4,000. Okay, so 4,000 employees inside that organization. So walk us through that company and, and how you operated it day to day and what was your team like? Sure. So it, it evolved over time. I started out doing the customer service because that was the most sort of process oriented and that's where they thought would be a good place for me to start. Uh, and I, um, I ran, ran that. So that was basically a call center taking calls from, uh, from customers generally about problems. And what I found when I got there is sort of like the fundamental things we talked about at the beginning of the interview just wasn't, weren't happening. Right. A Customers calling because there's an issue. And if you just solve that issue, you're not really understanding why the next customer is going to call you and you're taking on a lot more cost in the business because you're not fixing problems as they, you know, getting ahead of it. Sure. Right? And, and the way I looked at it was every customer was sort of a sensor that's basically telling you something about your product and you got to be listening to that and understanding that uh, to, to improve the product and service you offered. So the first step was sort of putting systems and processes in place to measure every reason why everybody called, understanding what the big issues were, analyzing for when systems were in control and out of control, and then driving, sort of doing root cause analysis on that and driving process improvement throughout the business. So I did that and sort of recognized that at the time that the biggest problems were in the servers and the team that managed the servers. So I ended up taking that over. And so I could sort of address most of those issues. Uh, and then the next problem was the sales organization was not sort of operating consistently with the rest of the organization. So I took that over 
that got me sort of a taste of the P&L and on the revenue side of business. And then I evolved into that way to running sort of the, the, the P&L, the P&L of the business. Hmm. So you, uh, you've mentioned a few times about something around, um, you know, the, 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 the Navy or the military have things like the mission and core values already deeply ingrained. Right. Often as the second in command or as the COO, we're put into an organization to, to grow it to the next stage. And sometimes we come in and we don't have those things deep, deeply right. entrenched. So how, how do you, or what would you recommend that people do to make sure that their core values and their mission are, are really deeply ingrained so that you have that foundation set inside of a company they're growing? Yeah, I would, I, I mean, we did that. So um, it, it, they were, they weren't really, I'd say when I got to endurance, they weren't really formalized. So we tried to sort of formalize those. And I would say it's really got to be an organic effort that involves everybody in the company. It can't be sort of a top-down thing that's just imposed upon people. Uh, it's got to reflect the behaviors of the organization as they're occurring. And and some of them might be good and some of them might be bad. And then maybe some aspirational ones that you add in to sort of, um, uh, you know, Motivator, yeah. Right. So, so I would say, you know, uh, like we went in and said it's going to be, you know, three to five values that are important to us. Worked with like up and down the organization to define what they were. Took a look at whether we're actually behaving our values or not. And those that we weren't, that we thought were important, we put an effort in place to try to uh, reward behavior associated with those values and not reward behavior that ran counter to those values. You're the first leader that, that has kind of said something that's something I've been saying for years, which is we have our, our kind of core set of core values, right? The, the core critical few core values. Then yeah. we might have some others that are more the aspirational values. Yeah. How would you differentiate for us what a core value is and what just more of an aspirational value is and, and how do you treat them differently in an organization? Yeah. So I would say, um, I, and a, a good reference for this is like Patrick Lencioni. I think I'm saying mm-hmm. his name right. He's done some, uh, I think good work on maybe uh, putting together a process to help you figure this out. I would, I would say the core, core values are, so I would break it down into three maybe three buckets. One are there's certain values that are just, if you want to be a business, there's certain values you have to have and you know, stuff like integrity and honesty and stuff like that. Yeah. I, it's not worth putting those down in a, like they just yeah. have to be standards and they're sort of a go, no go. If you don't operate this way, you're fired. I don't, I don't care about, you know, yeah. no questions about it. And then, and, and maybe having those listed someplace, they don't have to be like really discussed a lot. They're just sort of a, you know, it's understood. The standard thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you have some core behaviors that are maybe not your business that are important to your culture that you're actually living. You know, uh, and, and maybe there's like three of those. And then maybe there's a behavior that you want that you realize you're falling short of, and that becomes mm-hmm. the aspirational one. And you know what I found? Like what I would do is, um, you know, I. I would evaluate the people that work to me, not just on sort of like the metrics that everybody um, talks, you know, like the P&L or, you know, uh, retention or, you know, customer churn. I mean, we'd look at that stuff too, but I think it's important to evaluate your leadership on whether they're living the values of the company because somebody can be a great individual performer, but it's basically undermining the culture of the company because they're not doing what you want. So I'm a big proponent of sort of um, coaching 
into the values you want, evaluating people on that values. And on the ones that are aspirational, recognizing you're not there yet, but you expect people to make progress towards that behavior. How do you, how do you evaluate people on the core values and, and the kind of those expectations that you have in the interview process? So before they've started work for you, how do you, how do you garner whether or not they already live those kinds of core values before you make the offer? Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the effective things to do is to have different people. Um, you know, if you have your interview process is to sort of divide up those values um, uh, in, in the beginning and at different people observing for different things and maybe putting somebody in a scenario that sort of tests that value. You know, <laughs> then it's certain, and also making sure the whole company is sort of observing this stuff and feels comfortable with, um, telling you that somebody did something inappropriate. Like if somebody is rude to the receptionist and very sort of um, uh, polite and kind to the, you know, the interviewer, having a culture where that stuff will surface so you sort of understand uh, how people act um, is, is important, right? So it's sort of like this, you know, ego thing. Right. So you don't want like these high, you know, a lot of times these high ego persons present people present themselves really well, but they'll, but it'll be pretty rude to everybody who's not everybody else. Yeah. Right. And, it's fun. <coughs> Go ahead. Yeah. You know, and having you know, people have to feel comfortable saying, Hey, Hey, Ron, you know, I just, I, I, I this guy was just rude to me. I, I, you know, I hope, I just want you to know that as, you know, as you consider it. And, yeah, uh, we, we saw that happen years ago. We were at a dinner for uh, for 1-800-GOT-JUNK and we had just finished doing a round of interviews with potential franchisees. And there were, I think there were four franchise candidates at that all-day event. And we had said yes, that we were going to award franchises to three of the four. Uh, one just didn't qualify on the skill side, didn't have what it takes, wouldn't be successful. But three of the four definitely would. And then at dinner, when the leadership team went for dinner with the four franchise prospects, we were just sitting casually for dinner. One of the guys just got kind of weird and was starting to be kind of rude with one of the waitresses. It was yeah, all exactly. grubby. And we're just like, yeah, not going to happen. And we, um, we told him on Monday that we weren't offering a franchise and he didn't understand why. And we said it was actually what came down at dinner. It was just completely inappropriate. And you could almost feel the energy just get sucked out of the guys. He realized the interview hadn't stopped, but we weren't even really interviewing at dinner. Yeah. It's just that when we noticed it, we just knew it went against what we stood for as people. And it was just better to say no than say yes. And that's a great way to do it, Cameron, is just doing stuff like taking him to lunch or going for coffee or just mm-hmm. putting, putting in different scenarios outside the interview and oftentimes without the interviewer, but with other people in the company. It's yeah. Like you even said, your receptionist, right? Your director yeah. of first impressions, that, that person right. is such a great screener. I know yeah. that Zappos used to pick people up at the airport and they would drive them from the airport into their office. And they said that yeah. the shuttle driver was actually assessing the candidates. The shuttle driver worked for HR and they never told the candidates that. And yeah. the shuttle driver was just kind of secretly listening and interviewing people before they'd get to the office, which was kind of cool. But yeah, I, think what you, I think what you touched on is just more culturally that when that cultural DNA is so strong, nobody in the, in the organization is going to let the bad DNA pass through. Right. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. And that can, that can break pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, what, have you, what have you struggled at over the years as a leader? I mean, you've obviously had a lot of really great um, successes and some big roles. What have you struggled at personally in leadership as a second in command? Uh, I'd say, you know, 
I, you know, I have like a, I have a ten-page list of things I wish I would have done better as at my last job, and, I, and maybe the first one is the most fundamental. It's maintaining boundaries and protecting sort of myself. You know, there's this sort of I, I know a lot of times people who are very operationally oriented tend to throw themselves complete and in, in, into everything and and live it, and you mm. live it all the time. And you know, as an operator running a company that had data centers all over the world and stuff going down all the time. And, um, you know, I was just sort of immersed in that and I didn't take care of myself Uh. and I didn't take care of myself physically. I didn't take care of myself mentally, uh, because I was, I didn't take, I, I rarely took a vacation. I, you know, my phone was going off 24 seven and even, um, and it eventually got to the point where I completely burned myself out. So, you know, I think job one is sort of making sure that you have a system in place of self-care, uh, of, you know, exercise, of some kind of spiritual thing, some kind of mental growth thing that you just sort of are able to sustain uh, all the time because then you're not, um, you're not as susceptible to the sort of mood swings when things go bad or things go well and, and you're really, you know, keep yourself grounded. Um, so I, you know, that was certainly a big lesson for me was on the personal side, take care of myself because at the end I was burned out and really incapable of being maybe the strong person that I, I, I feel like I normally am. How did you know you were burning out or had burned out? Well, sort of, you know, it's, it's kind of um, sad, but you have, I mean, people tell you, people who care about you see it and tell you, and you're kind of the last person to know or you refuse it because you think you're so strong. You mm. think you're so good. You've, you've, we stood tougher, you know, in the Navy, it's life or death stuff. This was just sort of dollars and cents. It didn't seem to be that, that, you know, big a deal. But, um, you know, when you're just grinding yourself down, people who care about you will tell you. The, the question is, is do you have the courage to listen to them? And are you willing to do what it takes to sort of alter your course? So what were they specifically telling you? Well, everything from you need to make a vacation to you're not yourself, to you're not smiling anymore, to mm-hmm. you need to put that phone down. You know, I mean, a lot of different things from a lot of different people. Uh, people who worked for me who cared about me, people, uh, my family, my friends. Um, so it's sort of a lot of warning signals that I was sort of personally driving myself over a cliff. And I, you know, I was sort of, at the time, sort of power power paralyzed to stop it. And, um, you know, and it was kind of funny because I, had, I think I personally faced much more difficult challenges, but, um, this no, was I've, me. I've been there. I was hardcore there 19 years ago where I, I had a, an employee tap me on the shoulder and asked me if I was okay. And I turned in the elevator and said, yes, but then I collapsed on the floor sobbing right in front of him on the elevator. Yeah. And, and it was, um, and then a week later, I was at the doctor telling the doctor I was totally fine. Like, I didn't realize that I was burning everything out. So so I've kind of got these little signals that I watch for in myself right now. Do you have anything that you watch for that is a sign that, hey, I need to slow it down a little bit or I need to get some more yeah. balance today or tomorrow or this week? Yeah. So, I mean, I've developed, you know, and I had the luxury of taking some time off to figure this out, but I have developed a sort of personal routine that I do before I do anything else in the during the day. So what is that? Um, and I track it like a true operations person. I track it on a Google sheet. I measure my performance. I have a target 
of like you know eight, you know eighty percent sort of compliance. So because otherwise I'm too much of a perfectionist, and then you know tend to like over-index on it. So I mean, it, and it sort of is. Um, you know, I, I kind of view my life now as sort of like three dimensions, mind, body, and spirit. And it's it's really being able to take care of each one of those. So like in the morning, I, I, I'll meditate like in the first thing in the morning. And I'll read a couple inspirational things that sort of make me reflect upon my role in the universe and, uh, you know, what, I'm, what my, you know, unique sort of contribution to the world uh, is and mm. so sort of take care of the spiritual element of it. Then I'll, I'll work out. I work out six days a week uh, and, and and rest on one uh, and and do that every day. And then uh, I try to you know make it you know I I try to you know make a commitment to sort of observe observe something in in nature. Like one of my prescriptions was mm. when I was burned out was. Like I sort of was living in Boston and had seasonal effect, you know, whatever the seasonal affective disorder or whatever, yep. like cold and gray and never seeing, you know, getting to work before the sun was up and leaving after it was down and never seeing the light of day. And um, so really getting out and sort of observing the beauty of nature, just even reflecting on it and being mindful of it, whether it's a beautiful cloud or something like that. So sort of like, uh, and then I don't know if I mentioned learning something every day. So I try to read or learn in, you know, like something every day. So I figure taking care of that mind, body, and spirit sort of helps keep me grounded. And that gives me, uh, I think, tremendous strength to do stuff that I couldn't ordinarily do. It's really cool. I like something that you said about, um, but you, you also focus on kind of 80% compliance on all these areas. And it sounds like yeah. you just cut yourself some slack a little bit. I, I co-authored a book called The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs with Hal Elrod. And, and in that book, I said, I kind of feel like a fraud at times because when I describe my miracle morning, I don't, I don't perform it very often. And yeah. sometimes my miracle morning is like roll over and hug the pillow. Right. Um, so right, I'm listening to that. Like, like, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no. So, so I just like, I think for me, it's more of a mindset of if I do some things, I've got a long list of things that would be my ideal morning, morning day. But, if I do five of those things that are on my list, I kind of feel that I had a pretty good morning. And I, right. instead of waiting for perfection, because it's kind of like kind of catching up on the horizon. You can never, you can never get to the horizon. It keeps moving, right? Right. And then if you don't do it one day, you feel guilty. And then you feel like you're not going to do it the next day. And it's sort of snow, with me, it kind of snowballs. Like if it, you know, like it bothers me, like I use headspace to meditate and it's got this thing in there, what's your streak? And you know, I had a streak of 367 straight days of meditating and I missed a day. And then it's like, oh, well, I missed it. I'm back down to one. Why bother? And if you think about things in terms of perfection, it's sort of like it paralyzes you a little bit. When you think about, um, hey, I'm not perfect. This is a journey. These things are good for me. I'll decide on the few things that I really need to do and, and do them. It's, I think it's really constructive. Yeah, I think that I think it is as well. And I think that it's that positive momentum that that is really powerful. So I think that was kind of key of what I pulled from your your ideal morning is or is that that um eighty percent compliance. And and then so, deciding I guess deciding if there are heavy demands on you, like give yourself permission not to, like sometimes I'll say I'm not gonna do this this week. Right. Uh, because I know like when I add something new, it's sort of like put stress on the entire system and I don't know where it's going to fall out. So I'll say, well, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to make sure I work out and I meditate and everything else can sort of like get jumbled up for a little while. And then I'm going to add those back in when we get restable. And that seems to work pretty well for me. 
Yeah, I talked a little bit about that as well, is that I almost feel like you can, for one quarter, you have to pick two areas of your life to really obsess about and let the others right. slide or stay in orbit a little bit. And then right. next quarter, pick another two areas and obsess about those, but let the others stay in orbit a little bit. Right, exactly. So you're you're in the process right now of transitioning from a COO over to a, an entrepreneur and CEO. So what are you... Yeah. What are you transitioning over to do, and um, and what are you finding in this transition right now? What do you what are you seeing that's different? Yeah, so I guess um, you know my journey and, and reflecting on my past and dealing with burnout, and depression, and then looking at what's going on in the world made me realize that you know the systems and the technology you have in place aren't making people happier. They aren't bringing people closer together, and in some cases, they're turning people you know tearing people apart. And you're being kind of overwhelmed with a bunch of information that you can't manage and you can't see what's important. And it, it's like really frustrating. I think social media has been, you know, kind of healthy and turned out to people broadcasting their best life rather than really being authentic. Right. So I want to create something that encourages authenticity, uh, encourages deeper connection between people, helps you eliminate the noise and help you and helps people do something meaningful to help others and, and love others because ultimately that's how you, uh, you become happy yourself. So it's basically, um, so what we're building and we, we're testing it right now, we've got a few customers on it, playing around with it, is a, it's, it's a relationship, it's basically a relationship platform to bring people closer together. So it's limited like the way, just uh, like the theory, you, you can, you know, you, have you heard of Dunbar's number? And oh, that's like, it's, Gordy was telling me about you. Now I know, yeah. I know exactly what Dunbar's number is. It's kind of the 150 people you can have the most relationships yeah. with or something to that effect. Yes, and, I, and you don't have to give us the whole platform because I know you're still in kind of stealth mode or, or working through it, but um, you can if you want to. But yeah, I love what you're working on. Yeah, so I mean, basically, so you got 150 people. Like after that, it's just noise. You can't possibly, your brain is only big enough to manage so many relationships, and that's the way it is with primates. So, and then inside that, you have deeper levels of intensity in your relationship. You have probably around five, like, very best friends who are your inner circle who you can share anything with, and you could embarrass yourself in front of, you went there or whatever. You have 15 people. If you're having a small intimate dinner party, they would be invite. They'd be the 15 people in your, in your sympathy group would be deeply devastated if something bad happened to you. And then you have 50 people you'd invite to your birthday party and 150 people you'd send a Christmas card to or a holiday card to or something like that, right? And then it takes a certain amount of time to make an investment to maintain each one of those relationships where they atrophy away. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so what this does is, is provide a, a method of, of helping you think through what your actual social network is, encourages you to do activities that really deepen those relationships instead of superficial <laughs> stuff like liking somebody's Facebook post or, or stuff like that. And it sort of eliminates the noise so you can divorce, if you wanted to, you don't have to, but you could divorce yourself from like social media platforms and, um, and just use these because you won't miss out. Uh, it also provides really a, like a, a vulnerable communications channel that you could share with your closest friends. So like, you know, when you're uh, like your friend Sean passed away and you need to talk to somebody about that, you, you'd have that have sort of opportunity yeah. where you don't like you can say, cause you don't necessarily want to call everybody up and tell them, but you might say, Hey, I'm kind of sad today because a good friend just passed away and I'm dealing with it or whatever. And people could, offer support for you in, in an appropriate way. Whereas yeah, you would put that on social media. I think media. that's what I, what I love about this platform is I, I have 5,000 people on Facebook and about 10,000 on LinkedIn and I haven't added, 
I think I've met added 30 people on Facebook. The 5,000 are because people that have met me coming off stages or what have you. And there's yeah. a whole, there is a whole group, 150 or so that I really would love to have more meaningful relationships with, or really see what's going on in their lives instead of the 4,900 that I see. I'd, I'd like to really see 150. So I, I do like this platform that you're going to build out. Before you've got it built, what do you do currently to keep those relationships up with the, uh, the kind of, as you said, the five, the 15, the 50, and the 150, what do you do to keep um, on top of those relationships, stay meaningful? Yeah, so what I, as I build it out, so I'm building it out and kind of cluing it together using a database tool and an email marketing tool and a uh, texting tool and sort of like patch all this stuff together uh, without a lot of code. And I, so I built it out for myself and it forced me to reflect upon my relationships. And one of the things I realized is I do a pretty good job with my inner circle. I'm doing a better job. Actually, when I was a COO, I did a bad job with my inner circle because I assumed my inner circle just sort of understood that I was a great person and I loved them, but I could still work 23 hours a day and they would always be there. And that's really not true. Um, so some of us need help with the inner circle. Some of us need help with other circles. And then once I sort of ironed those down, I figured out like, like I have a lot of sort of casual friends, but I don't have enough people that you know, I let relationships atrophy because I've been so immersed in my work and in what I was doing that I wasn't paying attention to that. So as I entered this stuff, so I basically built this database and it's sort of almost like, um, and it, it, it reminds me to sort of connect with people at the right frequency in a meaningful way. Um, you know, so my inner circle is like, it makes me mindful to do something with my top five people once a week and really mm. think about it and do something mindful. Like not you just get caught up into the day to day. Did you take out the trash kind of stuff? But you know, what would make my wife really happy and go do it uh, with her or something like that. Right. Uh, and then with my 15 friends, it's really, you know, it, like I reached out to somebody who used to be one of my closest friends uh, and I hadn't talked to in a while. And you know, one of uh, I did a video call with him. And one of the things you, you in the research shows is your emotions are transmitted through your face and the human being evolved that way so that you could react quicker. If like, if we're having this conversation, a dinosaur walked behind my back and you would see it and look right. scared, then that would instantly communicate itself to me and then I could get my adrenaline going and start running, right? So emotions are communicated a lot through your face, some through your voice. So having a video call with somebody is so much more powerful than an mm. email or a text. You know, it conveys so much more emotion. So I ended up, like this friend I hadn't talked to in months, ended up, hey, let's schedule a video call. And then I found out you know, he was going through so many the similar things that I was. And he was so hungering for a connection. Yeah. And we ended up speaking for a couple of hours and it seemed like a second, right? So, so it's really getting people to do activities together, to look at each other in the face. To, you know, we can't be next to somebody, be, Great. you know, in you know, and, and, you can't do that with more than 150 people. You can't either. You cannot. You cannot. It's I, I had the uh, the second in command for Bumble was on uh, the podcast about a year ago, and she was saying that Bumble has just launched Bumble for Friends, and yeah. it's, it's kind of like a dating app, but where there's no intimacy or sex. It's purely about relationships and yeah. friendships. And I said to her, I think that's going to be bigger than Bumble. Because yeah. the reality is most people, most people aren't in a situation like where I'm at. I'm, I'm very lucky that I have this huge group of people that would love to be friends with me or love to know more about me. And I just have to be careful with my time. But most people are, you know, they go to their job, they have a small social network, they don't 
they don't like some of the people they work with and they don't know, or they've moved to a new city, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's who it seems to be. It seems to be resonating most with people who have moved to a new city, which happens more and more, Mm -hmm. um, or somebody who graduated from college and is in a new job and different uh, missing friends or people like me who are sort of at the point of life where they're reflecting on their relationships and realizing they've lost something and want to regain it. They know what it should be. And, and, and they realize it's lacking. So what have you noticed then going from the COO world into the kind of entrepreneur CEO world that, that uh, what did you not expect or what are you seeing that's different at this point? Well, you know, I guess I didn't think I could do it, right? Because I kind of, like you say in your first podcast, you just view yourself as a COO. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of think, well, uh, you know, I'm not the guy to innovate. But I always recognize, even as a COO, I, I had ideas about where we should go. I just didn't necessarily either have the confidence or the conviction about the problem that I was trying to solve. So I'd say one thing is, you know, I have conviction about a problem and I feel like combining that with my operational experience and leadership experience, you know, so sort of having a vision of what you're trying to do. And, and that enables me to be both the guy who, as a, you know, you know, I always wish, sometimes I wish as a COO, I had somebody who actually understood you know, what, how hard it would be to do something and, and would kind of help me think through it, right? Because a lot right. of times somebody's got this grand vision, you're like, how am I going to do that? Right. right. It was sort of, I can see it from both sides now, which I think is an, an advantage. So, and, and, I, and then I would say, um, you know, what sort of opened my eyes is this whole, you know, studying lean startup philosophy and lean management stuff like that and you you know i always viewed innovation as something like you know steve jobs like wakes up one morning and and has the picture of the iphone in his head and and, and goes and does it and you know what sort of this teaches you is that innovation is really a process right it's have an idea figure out how to test it as inexpensively as possible refine that idea and then do it again <laughs> that's operations that's not that's that's basically what it is right so if you think about sort of innovation as more of a process and sort of like, so then it becomes a question of identifying a problem, seeing if people recognize that problem, proposing a solution that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Doing a root cause analysis of that. And, um, and then solve it. Like a, like a little says, I ask people who, you know, enter their inner circle, you know, or enter their 15 closest friends and people sort of struggle with that. Yeah. But then my, and he said, well, people aren't, people aren't answering that question. So then I'd say, and then I talked to people about why and then listen to what they say. And then and there was yesterday tried, hey, if you're going to have a dinner party and the room holds 15 people, who would you invite? People can answer that question. And it's basically the same thing, right? So, you know, it's just sort of um, thinking about what, you know, what the barriers are to accomplishing what you want, solving that problem, testing it again, seeing that worked. That's operations. What do you think you would tell yourself to be different as a COO based on what you're starting to see as an early stage entrepreneur? What would you, um, what would you do differently as a, as a COO now? Well, you know, I think, um, I think one of the biggest problems I had as a COO is we became a public company and weren't ready for the pressures associated with being a public company. Mm. Uh, and, and, and suddenly your focus shifts from, and our focus shifts from helping small businesses to some extent to, you know, my focus as a COO became how do I hit the quarter? Right. Right. And then, and then there's all these metrics I got to do to 
to hit the quarter and how do we set expectations right? We always set expectations wrong and too aggressively. And then that led to sort of a lot of heavy lifting just to deliver the quarter every quarter. And you're sort of building up this pressure and pressure in a dam that's eventually going to break, right? So I think, uh, you know, what I didn't do as a COO as well as I would have liked is, is stay you know, had the strength to stay true to those fundamental principles and be able to say, this is what we can deliver. And let's not get caught up in the financial metrics. Let's stay focused on the product and the service that we're trying to offer. Oh, so cool. I think that's, uh, that's a fundamental one. And the other one would be about culture and really, really adhering to the culture. I mean, we did a lot of M&A towards end of endurance and it becomes very sort of difficult to manage corporate culture when it, you've grown uh, inorganically like that. But, all right, if you were to go back to your 21-year-old self to give Rhonda Salvia some of the advice that you now know to be true, what would you tell yourself as a 21 or 22-year-old that you wish you'd known? You know, I would have, um, I guess I'd say um, two elements are the self-care and the relationships. Yeah. Because, um, you know, when you're young, um, when you're young, you can, you know, you can, you don't have to work out and you can go run a you know, run a mile at a decent time and you could go drink whatever you want and you're not hung over the next day. And, um, it seems like you're going to have friends forever. Um, and you're not, you're awesome, but you're establishing the foundation and the habits for the rest of your life. Mm, and so, wow. uh, I would have really, um, paid more attention to, um, relationships, you know, and all the studies that you see, you know, they're the, there, your relationships are more important than your cholesterol level in determining how well and how your long health. you're going to live. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and people don't, most people don't pay any attention to that because they're so wrapped up into what they consider to be their job, you know, or their mission and, and not recognizing the importance of other people in that journey and, and take care of yourself. That's really cool. Ron LaSalvia, the president and chief operating officer, or prior president and chief operating officer for uh, Endurance, and now the CEO of Peck based in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Hey, thank you very much, Cameron. I enjoyed it very much. That was great, Ron. I really appreciate the time. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.